promised you the great secret, and I will not disappoint you. You are familiar with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp. Is a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. We have not obtained immortality. At least we have obtained reality. We began in a fairy tale, and we came to life. But is this life reality? In December 1945, an Arab peasant named Muhammad Ali al-Saman accidentally discovered a vessel in a cave in the Jabal al-Tarif Mountains in northern Egypt. He and his brother had been looking for sabak, which is a soft soil used for fertilizer, when he accidentally hit upon a rare earthenware jar about a meter high with his staff. He hesitated initially to open it for fear that a jinn or an evil spirit might be inside, but he also thought that it might contain gold, so he broke the jar. In it, he found 13 papyrus books bound in leather. Returning to his home, he dumped the books in the kitchen. His mother burned many of the books in the oven for fuel, but when he showed a local teacher, the teacher suspected that the books might be valuable, and so they were sold on the black market. But they were soon confiscated by the Egyptian authorities. There was one of the codices that was smuggled out of Egypt, and was offered for sale in New York City. Professor Gispel, who was a professor of history in Utrecht in the Netherlands, learned about this codex and reached out to the Carl Gustav Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland, to purchase the smuggled codex. It turns out that some of the pages of this codex were missing. So Professor Gispel went back to Egypt to see if any pictures had been taken of the pages. Tracing out the first line, in the library in Egypt, Gispel was startled to read, These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke and which the twin Judas Thomas wrote down. This month we get a little weird. Hidden wisdom, ancient feuds, spooks, mesmerists, secret cosmologies, voodoo priestesses. I've gone deep diving this month, perhaps a bit too deep for everyone around me, but now I'm back and I've come up with a few artifacts from the more esoteric realms. America in the late 1800s was an all-you-can-eat buffet of religious traditions. Want a little Gnosticism with your Protestant Christianity? Try Rosicrucianism. Want some astrology in your Buddhism? Try the Theosophical Society. This month, we get weird. And the first condition of a mystery is that it's something that you don't know. And that's the best place for us to start. My name is Tyler Lyle. Welcome to episode 19. I'm so glad that you are here Without further ado, Bastard Mystics NYC. Part one, the problem. It's the view of many thinkers today that the European Enlightenment stripped God of meaning, transferred his formal authority in the heavens down to earth to the hearts and minds of men. I think, therefore I am, was Descartes' famous assertion, which meant that man would now measure his own kingdom for himself. In a similar way, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, while he was trying to pray his relatives out of purgatory, uh, stumbled upon a question in his head, and that question was, how do I know that this is true? It started a fundamental rift between the tradition that authority was handed down from God and that perhaps authority now uh, could come from man. Uh, geometry, astronomy, a heliocentric version of the solar system, this transformation of knowledge meant that the power of the church 
declined as a way to explain human suffering and human purpose. Science came up with ways to explain human evolution and gene sequencing and launching people into outer space. But it was Frederick Nietzsche in the late half of the 19th century who foresaw the dark side of what this new master would mean for our future history. God is dead and we have killed him, Nietzsche's character wails in his book, The Antichrist. Where is the water to wash ourselves, he cries. So, if thinking man is the new authority, then by what authority did he appeal to for his crown? And more than that, where do we go in a world void of spirit and intrinsic meaning to find in ourselves the wonder and mystery and purpose that was once given to us by religion? This was the big question, my comparative religion professor said upon finishing my last semester of college. This is the question that if you can answer properly, will have been the purpose of your life's education. Where in the absence of God, in a post-ideological society, in a secular age, where is the water to wash ourselves? Part two, a burned over fervor. Imagine yourself in the early Gilded Age, say the early 1870s, less than a decade after the end of the Civil War. You are sitting in Manhattan in Madison Square Park, across from the future Flatiron Building. You strike up a friendly conversation with a stranger in a top hat who wants to talk about religion. Suddenly, this stranger lightly suggests that the Christianity that they teach you in churches isn't the whole truth. Your interest is perhaps piqued, then again, maybe not. He goes on to talk about Native American shamans, Indian Brahmins, the tarot, Gnostic cosmologies, speaking with the dead. They talk about Islam and Buddhism and the Kabbalah and Egyptian astrology and alchemical baths. And what do you say in response? The Jesus you learned about never spoke about Yeldabaoth or the Norse gods. But then again, how would you even begin to disagree with something that sounds so exotic, so esoteric, so strange? Theosophy was meant to be a synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy, according to its founders, Henry Steele Alcott and Helena Blavatsky. Alcott, a retired Civil War officer, and Blavatsky, a Russian occultist, met in New York after her 20 years of supposed trips to the Native American tribes, trips across England, Tibet, Egypt, and Greece. It was in Tibet, supposedly, that she was taught to control her psychic powers. She claimed that she was dispatched to America by a secret order of religious masters, the Mahatmas. And soon after meeting Alcott, he began receiving gold-inked letters from some of these supposed Eastern masters. They were signed with pyramid-like cryptograms, and Alcott later claimed that one of the turban masters materialized before his eyes in their Hell's Kitchen apartment, and that one of the letters told him never uh, to let a day pass without seeing Blavatsky. This was a time, uh, this would, would have been the 1870s in New York, of uh, intense religious syncretism. Immigrants were coming to America by boat with all sorts of traditions, some of them very strange. Some had fled Europe from persecution for these beliefs. Many of these early settlers after the American Revolution came to an area in New York State that stretched west from the Hudson River Valley. This had been the land of the Iroquois tribe, but because the tribe supported the British in the Revolution, the natives were driven from their lands and replaced by this new wave of religious pilgrims. First, the Shakers, then any other group with radical or unaccepted beliefs. 
This was territory open to all and governed by none. Carl Carmer called the area a broad psychic highway, a thoroughfare for the occult. It was in this area, in a village named Hydesville, that two young girls started hearing knocks in an empty room. Deciding that this was meant to convey some sort of message, the sisters devised a cipher that linked the knocks to letters in the alphabet. Cryptic messages were received by the girls uh, from a spirit claiming to have been a peddler who was murdered in the house. In the basement, the ground was dug up and uh, they found bone fragments of a skeleton. Along with uh, ghosts, there was also the Poughkeepsie Seer and Andrew Jackson Davis, who were mesmerists who came from the area that would be called the Burned Over District. They called it the Burned Over District because preachers would come to give revival sermons and so many people would receive salvation that soon there were no longer any unbelievers left to save. It was Burned Over. According to Mitch Horowitz, one in six Americans at some point believed in the form of spiritualism in the mid-1800s. Spiritualism is defined loosely as uh, relating to ambiguous esoteric occult ideas, but in a purely American sense, at the time it was the belief that you could communicate directly with the dead and that they could communicate with you. It was the first religion started in America that was exported uh, to other countries in the world. There was even a seance in the White House following the death of Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, in an attempt to ease his wife's grief. Um, one of the mediums who worked with uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was uh, one of the same girls that heard the knocking in, uh, in Hydesville. These theosophical and spiritualist movements, um, especially in the burned-over districts, gave way to Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, the Milliorite movement that led to the Jehovah's Witnesses. All these originated in this area of New York. Um, the religious syncretism that followed was because for the first time in history, it was possible to have basic knowledge of many of the major and a lot of the minor religious traditions at once. This led to a popularization of the Ouija board, the vaudeville fortune tellers in Atlantic City, um, the voodoo traditions that migrated from Africa on slave ships, uh, the power of positive thinking prophets, the Egyptologists, the Masons, alchemical baths, and the charismatic evangelists who sold the prosperity gospel first through the mail and then through an invention called the television. Later, this would turn into neo-shamanism and New Age thought, with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, and experimentation with LSD and yoga and mindfulness meditation. And the religious syncretism eventually would move from New York to Northern California in the 20th century. But ultimately, what is at stake is a rift between what is orthodox and what is not, what is sanctioned by religious authority and what is something else entirely. This all-you-can-eat buffet of belief, this combined not confined push towards all things spiritual uh, leads us to the first question. If it's all true, if it's all amalgamated into this broad umbrella of spiritual beliefs, then how do you divide the peas from the carrots? How do you know that that's steak and not horse meat? Kierkegaard says that believing the right thing isn't as important as believing in the right sort of way. He says that if you are a pagan that prays to a false conception of God, but you pray fervently and with your whole self, then as a pagan you are closer to the true conception of God than the pious monk who prays to the right God without passion or love. His answer is that it doesn't ultimately matter if it's beef or horse meat as long as it's nourishing. 
What is truth, Kierkegaard asks, but to live one's life for an idea? What makes a belief true? It might be you. Part two, healing rituals. Just before the poetry reading starts, I ask the overgrown boy sitting next to me why he likes poetry. What happened to him? And he says, I went to war. Sarah Manguso. Sherman Alexi, the award-winning author, canceled his book tour this week due to a depression brought about by the death of his mother. He says, I don't believe in ghosts, but I see them all the time. And I don't believe in magic, but I believe in interpreting coincidence exactly the way that you want to. And I don't believe in the afterlife as a reality, but I believe in the afterlife as a metaphor. And my mother from the afterlife is metaphorically kicking my ass. I asked a close relative this week who believes that angels speak directly to her and guide her when she started to believe things that were so outside of her accepted Catholic orthodoxy. She answered that it was uh, the death of her child. So too, with other syncretistic beliefs, grief plays an important role. One of my favorite local syncretistic religions is voodoo or vodun. Um, there are a lot of Caribbean immigrants here in, uh, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And there's this awesome book by Karen McCarthy Brown called Mama Lola, a voodoo priestess in Brooklyn. Voodoo is the Creole spelling for the African word that means spirit. Their rituals use Catholic iconography and Greek mythology to correspond in a way to the voodoo spirits. And it's estimated that there are tens of thousands of voodoo altars in basements across Brooklyn. McCarthy Brown writes, Voodoo as a system is devised to deal with the suffering that is life, a system whose purpose is to minimize pain, avoid disaster, cushion loss, and strengthen survivors and survival instincts. The oppressed are the most practiced analysts of human character and behavior, and the Haitian traditional religion is the repository for wisdom accumulated by people who have lived through slavery, hunger, disease, repression, corruption, and violence all in excess. She writes, there is no voodoo ritual, small or large, individual or communal, which is not a healing rite. This is why the character in Nietzsche's The Antichrist, who shouts, God is dead, is not making uh, a bold and defiant pronouncement. He is making a lamentation. After the Civil War, there was an explosion of esoteric beliefs in the U.S. Where do you turn when you've lost something profound? You turn to whatever the first thing is that seems to make life meaningful. And if you're in the midst of suffering, you're not so keen to make your beliefs academically airtight. William James was born in New York in 1982 and was raised in a Swedenborgian tradition, which was a new church movement founded in the 1700s by a charismatic leader claiming to have been given direct visions from God, predicting that God would replace the traditional Christian church with something new. William James is famous for a book that he wrote called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It takes uh, kind of a middle ground in the debate between what religious experience can be considered true or false. According to James, 
religion is the feelings, acts, and experiences of each individual in relation to whatever they consider divine, which is wholly unmediatable and totally personal to the individual. When God tells Abraham in the Bible to kill his son Isaac on the mountaintop, how does somebody who is not Abraham differentiate that behavior from that of the suicide bomber? Where does the authority rest to say what is true religion and what is insanity, what is forbidden and what is somehow justified in what Kierkegaard calls the teleological suspension of the ethical, the purposeful break from um, you know, the moral for a higher purpose? Um, it rests ultimately within the individual, and that's why this is very uh, tricky stuff. James would say that a religious experience can be considered true uh, pragmatically, not sort of um, objectively, but, uh, but pragmatically true when it leads the individual towards lasting positive change. That unmediatable territory, that in-between world is tricky because the mind and the world jointly make one another up. There are facts and there are interpretations, but we can't ever really separate our interpretations from the facts of the world without dealing with some kind of residue from the other. But in that residue is where art is made, where liberation happens, where resolutions that last a lifetime are forged, where love is born. It seems like this new thought that religion doesn't have to be useful is also maybe some of James wrestling with his religious background to make it intelligible without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I came upon James's work as a sophomore in college, and uh, he was one of the first sort of voices that gave me permission, in a way, to begin to break away from the Protestant faith that I had learned as a child. Part three, born again, again. My story is that I was abused by a religious system that taught me and others that God expected moral perfection. And then I saw this system pick off and ruin the most devout of those believers one by one. Infidelity, depression, spectacular ethical failings, and suicide. I saw a level of abuse in the name of God that just bulldozed people and created what I saw as a duplicity that was creating two lives for the believer, one that they could believe but couldn't actually live, and the other that they um, actually lived but couldn't understand. And then when this irresolvable paradox couldn't be held together at the same time as it often could not, the tectonic plates of personality rubbed together and people collapsed into rubble. Ultimately, as a child and young adult, I believed in a religion that could not exist in the real world, and that is troublesome. This is not the fault of religion broadly, if religion can exist in such a broad concept, because after all, nobody believes in a religion. They believe in primitive baptism or the Armenian Orthodox Church or Reformed Judaism. That's why it's impossible to talk about religion in the abstract. That's also why it's nearly impossible to talk about religion to somebody who grew up in a different religious tradition. You just can't understand at some fundamental level, and it's not just about the prayers or the songs, but it's the entire universe. It's the whole cosmology from the ground up. Our 
Individual faith is our mythology, our canon of spirits or saints or gods. It's our ethics, how we tip, who we marry, uh, how we raise kids and interact with society. It's our politics. It's where we go when we die. It's how we make sense of suffering and evil. It's what gives our lives meaning explicitly and implicitly. The problem is that it's so fucking different from person to person, and everyone is betting that out of the thousands of recognized faiths that theirs is right and everyone else's is wrong. When I was in college, I heard the Dalai Lama speak. I had a realization, one that would happen a few more times in my late teens and early 20s, that my well-defended traditions stood at odds with people of different faiths who were more articulate, more pleasant to be around, and more at peace with themselves than I was. I wondered if I could just will myself to stop believing in my worldview, sort of like Descartes did with the material world in his meditations on first philosophy. So I tried it. I welcomed doubt. I moved to Europe, I read Hesse and Kundera and Miller. I immersed myself in the blues and jazz and West African music. And finally, after kind of tabling my beliefs for a while, I started to open my eyes and record what I saw. Ultimately, um, you know, faith is a personal thing. My wife and I attend the Unitarian Church in Brooklyn, but that's mostly because the muscle memory likes singing songs and shaking hands with friendly strangers. I like belonging to a community of people who, you know, roughly think about the world the same way that I do. But ultimately, my little T truth on religion is this. Um, for me, orthodoxy doesn't compute, but atheism doesn't compute either. I find that for songwriting, for fiction, for any kind of art involving people and their place in the world, an atheistic story just doesn't make sense. Neither does a story of simply believing. Nihilism doesn't create meaning. Friction is what makes meaning. Struggle is what creates purpose and identity. The individual against society, the individual against his false beliefs about himself, the individual against God, the individual against mortality. This is where meaning is created and where meaningful art gets made. Because the truth is, is that we all suffer the indignities and the pain of being alive. And none of us gets to escape the executioner, ultimately. Um, we wrestle our whole lives in the in-betweens with only brief moments of rest. Spiritual authority, it seems then, is authority that liberates the individual and heals the individual. Um, that doesn't seem to come from outside in, but rather inside out. Part four, many gods. The main failing of the brand of religion that I was taught by the Southern Baptist Church as a kid was that it had no category for the in-betweens. Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, these are less religions in the Western sense than they are practical psychologies that help us mitigate suffering and to be aware of how we interact in the world. There is a place for ambiguity and for purpose and a place to sit at peace with irresolvable paradoxes. Not so in a lot of monotheistic Protestant churches in the 21st century. The ancient Greeks believed in many gods. This has advantages because there are gods who are tricksters, gods who are warriors, illuminators, musicians, peacemakers, creators, travelers. These are all personalities that an individual encounters and understands and embodies throughout his or her life. 
In the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer writes, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, to tear down, to build, to weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance, to scatter stones, to gather stones, to embrace, to refrain, to search, to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Zhuangzi, the Chinese philosopher, tells us to minister to the pole of heaven that is within us. But the faith that I was raised in, uh, there was no real answer as to how you navigate between these poles. In Greek or Roman mythology, one could pray to Ares or Jupiter in war, or create theater to hold a feast for Dionysus or Bacchus, or the god of tricksters, Hermes and Mercury. In the Catholic tradition, one might pray to the patron saint of travel, St. Christopher, or lost causes, St. Jude, or sickness, St. Raphael the Archangel. Or if you're Mama Lola, the voodoo priestess in Brooklyn, you'd sacrifice to Papa Legba, who stands at the crossroads of the physical and the spiritual and allows other spirits to cross over. Or the ancestral spirits called the Gide, who like to party and have a good time. Or if you're fighting an enemy and need fiery spirits to come to your aid, you'd call in Petroloa. These are God's spirits, personified markers, if you will, for different kinds of way stations in life. Each philosophical system or mythological structure is just an attempt on the part of the intellect to create a logical order out of the seeming chaos or imagery rising from the unconscious. Intellectual categories are a way of systematizing our experience of this nonverbal world. This is what my early religious education was missing. Carl Gustav Jung, the great psychologist who broke from his mentor Sigmund Freud when he delivered his Fordham lectures in New York City in 1912, minimized the importance of sexuality in the unconscious, contra Freud. And he offered that perhaps it was the spiritual dimension that held an important key to the undiscovered self. One of Jung's great contributions is the paradox that the conscious and the unconscious exist in a profound state of interdependence on each other, and that the well-being of one is impossible without the well-being of the other. Things like myths, symbols, signs, archetypes, these are things that help the conscious mind get in touch with its unconscious tendencies. Now, I want to say that I don't really know what it is to believe in the tarot. Um, I don't think there's a mythical force pulling cards out of the deck for me and telling me my fortune. But Jung's understanding of the psychological importance of the archetypes within the tarot are super spiritually powerful, and I'm amazed that no one has made me learn this stuff earlier. The tarot for Jung is a sort of deep metaphor for the content of the unconscious self. There are 22 cards in what's called the Major Arcana. The Fool is numbered zero. Then starting at one, the Magician, then the High Priestess, the Empress, the Emperor, the Pope, the Lover, the Chariot, Justice, the Hermit, Wheel of Fortune, Force, the Hanged Man, Death, Temperance, the Devil, the Tower of Destruction, the Star, the Moon, the Sun, Judgment, and finally, the World. Each of these cards represents a way to organize our emotions and our sense of self. The passage in Ecclesiastes becomes personified in the tarot into a journey of self-discovery, or so it seems after the couple weeks of digging that I've done into this topic.
The tarot, it seems, works as a kind of Western polytheism. In his lecture, The Undiscovered Self, Jung says, man's awareness of himself orients itself chiefly by observing and investigating the world around him, and it is to the latter's peculiarities that he must adapt his psychic and technical resources, Um, meaning that uh, man has to sort of change to fit society. He continues, this task is so exacting and its fulfillment so profitable that he forgets himself in the process, losing sight of his instinctual nature and putting his own conception of himself in place of his real being. In this way, he slips into a purely conceptual world where the products of his conscious activity progressively take the place of reality. Separation from his instinctual nature inevitably plunges civilized man into the conflict between conscious and unconscious spirit and nature knowledge, and faith, Uh, a split that becomes pathological in the moment his consciousness is no longer able to neglect or suppress his instinctual side. Our bastard mystics this month, Blavatsky, Mama Lola, and Carl Jung, they all play the role of the magician, the one card in the tarot, the evolved fool who has grown up and learned how to reconstruct the universe according to his or her specifications. The trick is not that it's real or fake in these objective senses, but whether the trick moves us or not. When the rabbit vanishes, when the whiskey disappears on the voodoo altar, when the rock turns to water or the water turns to wine, or the Statue of Liberty disappears on national television, do we look at each other and think, how the hell did that happen? We orient ourselves towards the spiritual when we need liberation. But that's not the end of the message. Um, This month, the real message is that we are the magicians, um, especially the creatives and the artists and the world builders in tech or concrete or families. The magician takes the chaos, the constituent parts of the multifarious, many-faced, contradictory truths of our lives, and makes something wonderful, something singular and beautiful to behold. These bastards' primary job was to ease suffering and to confound the know-it-alls. Conclusion. There was a sect of Gnostic Christians in the first and second centuries that lived mainly in North Africa. They believed that the revelation from God was open-ended that the final gospel had yet to be revealed, that these secret truths are given to individuals in their own time. This was a dangerous thought, and it challenged the Church of Rome's ideas of authority. And because the church in Africa had no army, they were wiped out, with the justification that their heretical ideas would corrupt the church. Ideas like women in leadership, divine revelation from God himself rather than the apostolic secession of popes, and they believed that there were new gospels to be written. In 1945, these 13 leather-bound codices were found buried in a clay jar in northern Egypt. These Gnostic gospels, many of them lost uh, until 1945, date back to the first century. It's one of the most important discoveries of the millennium, and no one discusses it. You can read them. Google the Nag Hammadi Library. And we can uh, thank Jung for taking an early interest in these documents that led to the discovery um, that they were, in fact, early church documents. Simon Magus was a famous magician in the New Testament. 
a heretic who became a convert and was later crucified. Hippolytus tells us, According to Simon, therefore, there exists that which is blessed and incorruptible in a latent condition in everyone. So, if the Gnostic Christians were right and the revelation is open-ended, then stay tuned. There are a lot of writers who are influenced by this sort of esoteric philosophy. Some of my favorites uh, are Henry Miller, Herman Melville, Herman Hesse, Pablo Picasso, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, uh, and as a side note, if you're an artist taking nothing more from this episode, learn the tarot and astrology and like Joseph Campbell's mythology, if for no other reason than to be able to recognize and apply these beautiful and timeless, deep, deep metaphors. The Golden Bough, the Jungian archetypes, the Zodiac, a hero's journey, the Vedas, the ancient myths. This is the stuff resigned to that tiny, unapproachable bookshelf in the back of the store and winds up informing the plots of basically every Disney movie ever. The architecture of Grand Central Station in New York, the career moves of tech gurus, and the formation of the New Testament canon. It may be bogus in the sense that all religion might be bogus, but at its roots, it connects us to a deep story, and the deep story is one that we all share. It's hard to be alive. We don't know what we're doing, and if we can live in this contradiction long enough without cracking, maybe we are offered the possibility that the magic might be real. This underlies Western religion and Eastern philosophy and the tarot and the philosophy of the collective unconscious. As Sally Nichols writes in Jung and the Tarot, by transforming one object or element into another, the magician reveals another truth, namely that underneath the 10,000 things, all manifestations are one. All elements are one and all energies are one. Air is fire, is earth, is rabbits, is pigeons, is water, is wine, is one. All are whole and all are holy. The magician helps us to understand that the physical universe is not the result of the original life power acting on matter. Rather, it is the result of life power acting upon itself. Out of itself, the one power builds all shapes and forms, all force and myriad of structures to return us to the whole by first leaving it. This is the paradox of the bastard mystic, and I think that it's maybe one answer to Nietzsche's question of where the water to wash ourselves comes from. I think it's self-knowledge, but more than that, it is self-acceptance. Understanding all of these chaotic parts are parts of one whole. I'm going to leave in an unconventional way today. I'm going to let the late Alan Watts read one of his favorite passages from Carl Jung. I hope you guys have a great month. I'll see you uh, in August. And I want to read a passage from one of his lectures, and he writes as follows. People forget that even doctors have moral scruples, and that certain patients' confessions are hard even for a doctor to swallow. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted, unless the very worst in him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes only through reflection and through the doctor's attitude towards himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. 
Whether he puts his judgments into words or keeps them to himself makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use. Feeling comes only through unprejudiced objectivity. This sounds almost like a scientific precept, and it could be confused with a purely intellectual, abstract attitude of mind. But what I mean is something quite different. It is a human quality, a kind of deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them, and for the riddle of such a man's life. The truly religious person has this attitude. He knows that God has brought all sorts of strange and inconceivable things to pass and seeks in the most curious ways to enter a man's heart. He therefore senses in everything the unseen presence of the divine will. This is what I mean by unprejudiced objectivity. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor who ought not to let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate. It oppresses. Uh, I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say that we must never pass judgment when we desire to help and improve. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. Perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple, and so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness? that I myself am the enemy who must be loved, what then? Then, as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. There is then no more talk of love and long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves, and had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed.